0: Welcome to another uctv.tv podcast presented by University of California Television. I'll read a bunch of things from practice and then I'll read some new work too. So this is the um This is the first poem in the book. It's it's kind of it's a Sabbath poem. It's also a creation of the world poem in a way because that's what the the Sabbath marks. Uh And I'm also thinking of that really most frightening uh, uh, plague um, of the book of Exodus, the the plague of darkness, um, where it was a darkness that, it was a tangible darkness. Well, it was the killing of the firstborn. That was frightening, too. Okay. But that was a bad one. Parable. I lit the candles of the Sabbath and covered my eyes. Terrified in the mind as I was, and waiting for rest. And the evening passed, and as they reached their end, the one became turbulent, sputtering loud. The left one on the table, the one facing my heart. The heart of it burning out impure and rough, a red with tarry shadows spitting death at me. The other placid as prayer, clear light and patient in the copper hourglass bowl. Steadfast as the soul of the one I love Soothing me, being also alive And this one I knew would last and burn long tonight The other flail down like madness and hard living of every sort The darkness that is touched and felt And I sighed for the love and sighed the poor candle out Then I could rest, having yielded half the light Here's a little uh, translation of a a four-line poem by Paul Ceylon. I think of it, I have no idea really what he was thinking of, but I, I think of it as one of those awestruck encounters with God, like a burning bush. Uncharacteristically, it rhymes. It doesn't have a title. I know you. You're the one bent low. I, your servant, am the one pierced through. Where, to vouch for us both, will a word flame free? You, so completely real, hallucinate me. This is a longer one. It's a poem from my friend Charlie Halloran, who died in 1993. It's in five parts, um... and it's called Brand New. One of these mornings, you're going to rise up singing. Now Charlie's body is surrounded by the work of his hands, his hats and painted scarves arrayed around him on the bed. And on a tape from long ago, he plays the flute as we gather in the house. Summertime in February light. All night he moaned and vomited sloughing off the body one agony after another and his mind already at play somewhere, talking to people we couldn't see in words we couldn't hear until he stirred a last time to come back. Hold me, he said, and carefully David held his hands. He didn't much like being touched anymore, it hurt. No, hold me, he said. So David lay beside him on the sheet, To cradle the sore bones, and as one died, the other slept, worn out from the long night, the work of love come to an end, and so much work undone. In the middle of Joa's dance, bowling balls start careening across the stage. Two or three at first, and it's more or less manageable to nudge them off, even make a pleasing pattern of the interruption, and go on dancing. Then it's happening much faster than he can catch and guide them, and at last, he has to give in and choose just one. Set his fingers inside and caress it, toss it into the air, and at its highest point, the camera catches it to make the photo next to Charlie's bed. Joa. Gazing up in delight, and unburdened after all, though he's long dead. The bowling ball fell into his arms, and he lugged the weight away. How do we forgive ourselves for what we haven't done? The failures of courage and heart, so much undared and unexpressed. Over and over we talked about it, the ways we hadn't measured up, on what Done what? We'd told ourselves, by now, we would. Charlie showed me once a little potted orchid on his table. Four pale blooms like crumpled paper cups turned over. The story of my life, he said, trying to smile. Furious that day at what he'd given up on, would have to give up next, what would be taken away. First, the strength of his hands to sew and paint and play music then his sight, then his breath, then he did smile. The fucking thing only came this far and didn't open. Taped to the wall is Adrienne's letter urging, believing, yes, you must continue. And what if our lives are forgotten and what if we're lost? We live on in others, but they will also die, and one day it will be as if none of us had lived. I want to believe when everything that was given to us is taken back, love remains and won't forget. Living without knowing and every day starting all over again. One day I saw him on 18th Street, bundled in scarves under the bright sun as if noon were midnight and leaning at his cane, and I moved to kiss him until he snapped, you can't do that, his voice gone harsh because He'd had to say this now, too many times. Of course, I remember, I can't kiss you anymore. It was Pesach. In the doctor's office, he had just approached the moment of death in a waking dream, a spirit leading him to a wall and to a door in the wall he had to open. And there was a great cry in the land of Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. We had to begin again. Light the candles of the Seder another year and remember for each other the promise of freedom, holding hands. Then Charlie read in the Haggadah the voice of a child, asking, what good will these rituals ever do for me? And rushed away. The orchids he had brought for the table were a ritual, too. And as he cried in the next room, in his sister's arms, we looked at them, ashamed, Of prayers made of words Hey babe I greet you sitting in the sun in your window seat Catching morning light Threading tiny green beads on a string To decorate your velvet hat In the middle of the city You're a bird of magic In the flowering branches of a forest Impatient spirit Girl boy Gay one Beautiful and frail with a button on your favorite cap that says Destination Unknown. You're going out tonight in rouge and a velvet dress and beaded hat and the rooms in a riot, sewing machines and hat blocks, ironing boards and metal presses, wigs, spray paint and cans, church hats for your nurses from the hospital, spools of thread on pegs, feathers and painted silk, shells and ribbons, polished stones. You are home. You are transformed. You tell me an angel spoke to you when you were a child telling you God is love, the love of your family you will always have with you. Hold fast to it and trust it and believe it. Both our fathers think we've thrown away our faith now, and how can we explain we haven't turned away, but returned by different paths? Fairy, pantheist, Jew. Because even though we're full of doubt, Doubt dissatisfies us. We praise the source of life who has kept us alive and sustained us and brought us to this time. We are so old, we are brand new. I stole that line from Betty Carter. She was introducing the band. I, I um, saw at the Great American Music Hall. And, you know, they're all up on... On stage, playing their hearts out, 70-something, and that's how she uh, described We're so old, we're brand new. Um, Title poem, and then I'll move on to some new stuff. Um, It was the seventh anniversary of my father's death, and among other things, the portion of Deuteronomy for that week said, Every seventh year, You shall practice remission of debts. So, here we go. Uh, This is a sonnet. It's called Practice. How simple it ought to be to practice compassion on someone gone, even love him, long as he's not right there in front of me, for I turned to address him, as I do, and saw that no one's lived in that spot for quite some time. Oh, turner away of prayer. Not much of a god, but he was never meant to be. For the seventh time, I light him a candle. An entire evening and morning it burns. Not a light to see by, more a reminder of light, a remainder with a prayer on the label and a barcode from the store. How can he go on? He can't. Then let him pass away. He gave what light he could. What more will I claim? What debt of grace he doesn't owe? If I forgive him, he is free to go. So I'll read some newer ones now. This is a pantoum of all things. I had never written a pantoum before. But it it repeats lines, so it kind of fits... um, obsessiveness, and, uh, well, we had just been in Rome, um, so it was a good occasion for obsession. It's called Window Shopping, Rome. Surrounded by the unattainable, I at last want nothing, or almost nothing. I become content with the fleeting, the perishable. Last night, I wanted nothing but a rose-pink shirt and tie in the window at Missoni. Content with the fleeting, the perishable, I ate a double cup of plum red gelato. But I wanted the rose-pink shirt and tie in the window with a pink moto helmet to match. I bought a double cup of plum red gelato, three euros instead of 500. No plum red moto helmet to match and a notebook with a map of Rome on the cover three euros instead of 500. But didn't I deserve the Dolce and Gabbana boots? <laughs> a notebook with a map of Rome on the cover, the Tiber like a ribbon marking my place. But didn't I deserve the D&G knee-high boots that came with a matching swim, swimsuit briefcase and hat? <laughs> the Tiber like a ribbon marking our place. We strolled down a lane of prohibitive antiquities, I forgot the swimsuit, the briefcase, and the hat. Now I pined for an astrolabe, an Etruscan chariot. We strolled down the lane like prohibited antiquities in a realm of the eternally sun-blessed and young. I pined for an astrolabe, a globe, a chariot. I longed for unapproachable Roman men in their realm of the eternally sun-blessed and young when what I wanted was a youth I never had. Those unapproachable, God-like Roman men Transfixed by wanting nothing but themselves <laughs> What I wanted was the youth I never had Or almost never No, I became transfixed by wanting nothing Wanting not even that Surrounded by the unattainable <clears throat> <laughs> It's really all I got out of that trip Was a notebook and a lot of gelato <laughs> And a pantomime, all right. <laughs> okay, this one. Um, if you've ever had an, a 17 year old in your house, or if you've ever been 17, it's called Doorway. He goes out the door as someone I don't know. Not the boy man I was at 17, but somewhat lagging behind, somewhat further ahead dressed carefully for others in red and black, his body a deliberate mystery. No idea what he knows, what he says, what he does. I'm not supposed to know, only the surfaces of fact, of where he's going, the stated plan, the hour of return. Left behind with a trail of his belongings across the hallway floor, the clothes he knew not to wear. I'm free to pick them up and sort them if I want, or to leave them where they are. Free to raise the window for a little air. I know enough to stay out of his room, more than my father did. I know enough to ask for one quick hug before he goes. He knows enough to give it. And what comfort it lends me is this instance of nakedness I wait for, the oldest illusion there is, not being shed, but overthrown. Um, my friend uh, Remy Charlotte just turned uh, 81. Uh, I don't know if you know him, but a, a brilliant dancer and choreographer and designer and a writer of children's books. Um, among, other th- among many other things in, in the old days, he used to do these uh, programs called imaginary dances where uh, one after another dancers would walk on stage and describe An impossible to do dance, and that was it. Um, uh, So a few years ago, Remy had a a pretty serious stroke, and um, you know, language and speaking and reading have become among the near impossibilities. Um, So I wrote an imaginary dance for him for his 81st birthday. As letters of the alphabet fall from the rafters, from the arms of God, pronouncing themselves, gather them up into as many pockets as you have. They will be very small, all but weightless on their own. This will take some time. Let the rest of them whirl in the offstage breeze or drift like snow in your hair, on your tongue, on your shoulders and feet. Arrange them if you want. Let them arrange themselves. By and by, you will have all the words that have ever been spoken or sung. Some of the letters will arrive as fire and fall as ash. Some of the letters will be silent. Those are the ones to use to make a wish. Um, I've just um, recently started... uh, Translating the latest book by um, the great Mexican poet, Jose Emilio Pacheco. Um, it's called uh, The Age of Darkness, La Edad de las Tinieblas. Um, I'll just read a few things, um, five very short things um, um, from Jose Emilio, Emilio Pacheco. Um, and they have a kind of a haiku quality. Let's see what you think. This is just called light. Over the space of one second, time drops light over things. Let's say the sea has no beginning. It starts where you first encounter it, and it leaves you wherever you meet. If light spreads, it takes the shape of what looking invents for it. Little forest, splinter of light, The setting sun turns into one more autumn leaf. And here's a little prose poem called "Concision," But I translate it as succinctness of rain, sovereignty of water as it falls into the trees. When everything is turned indigo blue, the rain obliges the dawn to prolong its grayness. It's pleasant to look at the world covered by a veil that affirms its continuation, the lastingness of a life in which we will exist no more. Okay, two more things. A little longer. Um, In the last, I don't know, ten years or so of her life, my... Husband Yoel and I were, were really uh, privileged to get to know Grace Paley a bit. Um, uh, if you don't know her stories and her poems, that's your first assignment uh, for the rest of the day and your life. And uh, when she died in August o um, eight. Um, she left a lot of work behind. She was terrible at sending things out and she figured, oh, it'll be time later. Um, and her husband, Bob, is finding lots of things in her computer, in her desk. But there's a story that she used to tell on herself and who knows if she ever wrote it down. Um, so I did in my way as a tribute to her. Um, as you may know, she wrote a lot of uh, stories over the course of uh, her career in the, in the voice of an, uh, a kind of an alter ego uh, named Faith. So I, uh, so I wrote a little Faith story. It's called Elsewhere for Grace Paley. She woke up to a clinking sound like a stuck thought as if there were some pestering obstacle in a story she wasn't writing that would work itself out in her sleep if she could pay attention enough. Foolish thought that it would happen like that. But it wasn't a thought, thought Faith. It was a dream, and a dream is not foolish. Not a bone in her body that was moving, but the eyes wake up in a hurry if they need to. It was her ring of house keys dangling over her face. And attached to the keys, an unwashed hand coming out of the sleeve of an unwashed shirt. And attached to both of those in the half-dark, a young man standing at the side of her bed she had never laid eyes on in her life. Why wasn't she more afraid? She knew what had happened. She had done it again. Richard was always warning her, or Tonto. Ma, you can't leave your keys in the door like that. What are you thinking of? Bringing the shopping in or distracted at the mail as the door shuts behind. You're on West 10th Street in New York. This is not some anarchist Russia of your dreams. Your mind is elsewhere. She often liked her mind being elsewhere, but at the moment it was locked onto the peculiar here and now and what it might want from her, so she sat up, the keys almost brushing her face and then tugged out of reach. He had mostly a look of reproach at her foolishness on his face, too nervous to manage sarcasm or menace or any of the more criminal expressions. Then he held up a not very serious knife. He wanted her money, but it came out like the kind of pleading she used to get out of either of the boys when they came up short on a Saturday night. The hand with the keys was shaking more than dangling. It wasn't so much the loss of her sleep that made her weary. It was the sadness of that hand. He didn't smell so good. He looked 18 or so. But I don't have money, Faith told him. I'm a schoolteacher. What's the matter with you? Do you live around here? Yeah, he answered, just over... Hey. I bet you got money someplace. Coming into her house in an hour like this with an inadequate weapon like the village idiot in a folk tale, It made her wonder about the kid's mother, if he had one of those. In the end, she found $6 or so in change by looking into all of the desk drawers in among the scraps of paper she had written things down on for untold years to think about some more someday when she had a little time. Quite a few scraps that ought to be poems by now or maybe were already. And here was another half-written story standing upright in her bedroom, uninvited, the Schmendrick. (laughs) Now she would have to run into him at odd times around the neighborhood forever, like an unfinished argument she would have to choose to wonder or not how he was making his way. Heading out her door, he turned around, remembering his manners, and handed back the ring of keys. This probably can't go on, you know, Faith said. You could put your mind to something else if you wanted to. Have you thought about the community college? (laughs) Then she sat up for the rest of the end of that night, putting her mind to one of the vagrant scraps of old writing she had found. Thank you. Thank you, Grace. That was Grace. Before that kid was out the door, she was counseling him about, you know, going back to school. <clears throat> okay, one last one. And this is, this is a fun form, speaking about obsession. I learned this from Brenda Hillman. Uh, it has the an ancient Greek name, uh, ropalic, where each line, okay, it's kind of visual. No one will ever publish it because it's impossible. But... Um, each line, each succeeding line has one more syllable than the one before it. And, you know, I was doing some seven-liners, and this one kept going. So I, I, I set the goal of, okay, how about 36? It's a nice Jewish number. It's a multiple of 18. Um, so what can I tell you? Um, it's called, it's, and, and it has a Talmudic story in the middle. It's called Counting. What else? <clears throat> What if I, this moment, were only prayer? Not a thought or word of one, nor even an intention. Sunlight on grass, nothing of itself but what it shows, or a bird that is called out, filled with purest hearing. Well, I have the prayers in the book, and once again I have lost my place, dreaming even past the prayer that calls on me to listen up. Must I start it all over? And where would I begin? How far into the past would I unwind? How far would a self have to cast itself out before it flew beyond its reaches to live instead of being only lived in? Oh, it's like asking to stop breathing. In the time I've spent worrying, the sun turned all to shadow. It began to rain. The scent of the mown grass lifted into the trees. And now the light and shade have returned to their places a little further on in accordance with the number of moments that have passed. Rabbi Hia, called the Great, once said, I have never in my life prayed with intention. One time I tried to intend but only wondered in my heart whether I would be received before the king or sent into exile, how was I to know? This of course started the other rabbis talking. Rabbi Shmuel admitted with a shrug, I've been counting chickens. Rabbi Bun, the son of Hia, said, I have been counting the layers of stone in the wall, and his eyes lit up with this woeful confession. Rabbi Mataniah sighed, since there is always one who feels responsible for the prayers of all the rest. Then let there be blessings on our heads, for I have noticed that whenever we come to the last of the benedictions at which we are commanded to bow down, our heads are bowed of their own accord. But look, I must have nodded off again, enumerating, losing track of what I meant to praise, drool on my shirt, or else have had a dream with none to interpret it. Will you not look away from me a while as Job cried out and let me me be whilst I swallow mine own spit? The rain has started falling again even in the path of the sun, as if there's no reason to decide which will be first or last, and a great round of song is circling among the uppermost branches of the spruces. Return to me, O God, and I'll return, letting the day begin again, even if it's halfway gone, extolling the one who removes the sleep from my eyes, the slumber from my eyelids, and gives the rooster discernment to tell day from night. Let me count the threads of you that I might tug at, Complicated by being many Simple by being one And if not to arrive at wanting nothing Which is another desire Then to yearn for what is given Including the dust and the ash And the last moment you have counted up for me Wherefore I clap my hand unto my mouth Thank you That's right.